Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe, a podcast on ideas, politics and all things European, European Liberal Forum project. My name is Leszek Jaszczewski and I really hope that you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe. This is Leszek Jaszczewski and my guest today is Daniela Schwarzer, who is the rapporteur on the, of the setting on high seas reforming and enlarging the EU for the 21st century report we're going to discuss today. But uh, she's also the member of the executive board Bertelsmann Stiftung um, and honorary professor of Freie Universität Berlin and the author of the book that just been published, uh, Christenzeit, about the Zeitenwende in Germany. It's available in uh, German, so we strongly recommend it to all our listeners. Daniela, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Leszek. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start with, uh, with a short explanation what because this is a very well influential already report it's been just published a couple of weeks ago but can you tell us more about the background of this report how this group of 12 has been uh well constructed and how this report should be viewed because this is a franco-german um endeavor to what extent it is the position of the countries to what extent this is the independent experts suggesting some ideas so can you tell us a bit more about the, about the background, how you work together, how you got to the conclusions that you, um, that you got? The two uh, ministers of European Affairs from France and Germany had the idea at the end of last year that they wanted some input into the question, how can the EU be made enlargement ready and what kind of institutional or decision-making reform does the European Union need? They then chose six experts on each side and asked us all whether we would join a working group, which then got mandated by an official mission letter um, around the anniversary of the Elysee Treaty, which is the Franco-German Friendship Treaty um, that celebrated its anniversary on January 22nd. And so we started our work um, very independently. In fact, we even asked the ministers, do you want a report which is consensual to you and immediately usable with all the propositions? Or shall we work completely independently um, and propose things that possibly will not be adopted politically because uh, they go too far for the current uh, political situation or simply because they don't necessarily uh, meet Franco-German interests? Um, and the latter was the case. So we were asked to work very independently, and we did. We did discuss, of course, at the start of our work, uh, quite intensely with the two ministers, how to understand the political situation, you know, which timeframes we would ideally be looking at and uh, how to present uh, the report. Um, but once we had clarified that, we developed our own approach. Um, and I can, I can say that in very simple terms. So we said, basically, the European Union, in our view, needs reforms anyway. So not only because possibly six, eight, or maybe even 10 members join, but because we have seen that over the past years, the EU system has been able to develop further, in particular in moments of crisis. But there is a reason to look at the functioning of the system now under new geopolitical circumstances, under new political uh, contexts within. Um, and that's why we said, okay, there are some reforms which should be adopted uh, no matter what, no matter whether there's enlargement or not. Um, we then said, well, we have to have principles for uh, the kind of reform proposals we make. And we looked at the European Union and its sui generis character. 
And we asked ourselves, do we want to propose a radical reform, a setup of a new system, or do we rather think there is a sense in how the EU was built and has evolved to today? And we agreed on the latter. We said, we see the system is a good balance between representing European citizens and their interests in the European Parliament, having the European Commission as the guardian of the treaties, um, and uh, we have the European Council and the Council of Ministers where national interests are represented. And we said, we do not think that we are currently in a political situation where you can do away with that complex balance of interests, but we rather said within that setup, we want to make proposals how it can be it can work more effectively. And then we said there will be three criteria for us. And every reform proposal has to help further at least one of them. And those are first, make the EU enlargement ready. Second, strengthen democratic legitimacy and the rule of law. And the third one, enhance the EU's capacity to act. Some of the proposals feed into all three, some only into two, very few just in one. And so that's the way we worked. Um, we did not just work among ourselves. We were 12, but we had so many conversations with representatives of governments, with advisors, with uh, researchers, think tankers, academics, both from the EU 27, but also from candidate countries. Um, we met every other week for two hours, 8 a.m. Friday mornings, and then we had three full day meetings because we did feel we have to work together. And on top of that, we had those individual consultations with other um, input givers um, from across the EU and, and candidate countries. And those were extremely fruitful inputs. Sometimes we posed a specific, specific question to them when we felt there's a certain expertise or a certain perspective we need. Um, and in other cases, we just had a very open exchange about what they see as priorities for the EU to reform. And so we reached a a stage where for us there is one fundamental message which is very clear I think in the report and that is enlargement should happen and the EU needs to get ready for that. It should set itself a date which should be the year 2030 in our view not for enlargement but for the EU to be enlargement ready. So as of that date it should be able to integrate new members but it's at the end of the day up to the members whether they are ready. So we couldn't really comment on their date, um, but the EU should show that commitment. Second point, we make a very clear statement that enlargement needs to make the EU stronger to have its sense. It's a geopolitical tool. It's an enormously important stabilizing factor for the continent to bring in new members into the EU. But if through enlargement, the EU becomes weaker because it can no longer act efficiently or because its fundamental base rule of law is weakened, then this doesn't make sense. So we make a strong case to make sure that the EU is not only enlargement ready, but will also be stronger through enlargement. And I guess the third big element in our report is that there is one big non-negotiable principle, and that is the rule of law which the EU has its own problems with already, um, with at least two member states. Um, and so we say this space has to be strengthened before new countries can come in, because otherwise there is a real risk that the EU will not be able to manage itself in a way that it complies with the own principle, which is fundamental to the functioning of the single market. 
So in a nutshell, that's that's how we worked. And then the result are more than 40 pages of pretty concrete proposals. Some of them can be implemented based on the Lisbon Treaty. Others need treaty reform, but we structure them in a way that there are quick wins and bigger issues to be tackled. Right. This is actually what I like about this report, that even if you were working independently, it is not just a wish list of things you would like to see reformed in the EU, but these are the issues which can be implemented. Sometimes you offer options, usually you offer options, uh, seconds, third choices, which are moving around the uh, treaty changes, which, of course, you, it's a main suggestion that actually the treaties should be changed, but you offer some some work around, at least on some issues. So I think it's a big it's, it's a big strength of this report that this is something actionable and not just something to be put on the shelf and, and wait for the right, right opportunity to, to, to arise. Mm, but I wanted to ask you, mm, because some of those, because there are a lot of like, let's say, sort of technical suggestions like limiting the number of MPs or, or commissioners on the, mm, in the commission, there are some that I would say are fundamental, let's the rule of law, the conditionality, even the sort of suggestion that perhaps the Article 7 should be implemented more strongly and to the extent that country is basically out of the EU if it's stripped of the funds and voting rights. Of course, you can't expel the country from the EU, but you can make the uh, membership quite unattractive in a way. And I'm wondering, how do you see the, the current power structure and to what extent your report is suggesting a shift in the power structure. Do you think this is this level of, of, of the reform or do you think it is sort of insignificant from the perspective of how the EU functions today? So for the rule of law principle, uh, we really put that core and center to the report and you find it in, uh, in the first chapter because we realized that if that is not given, um, the other reform proposals that we make will only have limited value um, because our whole purpose was to make the EU a stronger actor, um, not only internally, but also in the new geopolitical environment. So in terms of shifting power in the implementation of the rule of law, I think our proposals do make a difference because what we say is there is a way to implement the rule of law without touching the EU treaties. And we take the example of the recent um, conditionality introduced in the next generation EU fund. So we take that as an example and say, we think that rule of law conditionality mechanisms should be used to sanction the EU rule of law breaches, but also breaches of Article 2, which lays down the fundamental values of the EU um, through actually the multi-annual financial framework of the EU, not just a side budget, which the next gen EU fund is, but really the core of the EU budget. And that, I think, does shift the power because if that happens, um, and there's a good process to monitor and to implement that, what has happened with Article 7 won't happen because there you have uh, a necessity to have a unanimity among all members except for the one that breaches rule of law for the mechanism to kick in. So um, we think that with the design of the new budget, there is a legitimate question 
to be asked in particular by those who give most money to the budget, and that is whether the expenditure side of the budget is happening according to EU law principles. And I think that's an absolutely legitimate question to be asked. And if the answer is no, then the money can't be spent. And that does shift the balance, because right now, if you have two countries, both in violation of Article uh, of, of the Article 2, and, and hence under an Article 7 procedure, one can protect the other. So I think there is a shift. Um, and also it makes the whole debate more political, because when it is about money, I would say also national publics care more, not only for those who are sanctioned, but also those who actually pay into the EU budget. Because if you don't work on the shared value base that everyone subscribed to, um, you know, you may ask yourselves questions, why are we doing this? And to what extent do we need to protect our own principles to make it legitimate for all to work together? If you are in a club that is ex as close as the EU, you need to have joint rules and they need to be protected. Well, I think that's with the current uh, latest elections results in Poland, that perhaps this window of opportunity opens. Because I think it's it's clearly seen how dangerous it is, and the case of isolating Hungary perhaps might be back on the table. Um, I don't want to to go. It's very interesting for me, of course, but uh, I would like to also talk about other issues in this report. When I asked about this, let's say power relations, I also took into account how you try to balance the Commission, the Council, the Parliament not trying to force one upon the other. So in, in this terms, I think this is pretty balanced uh, power relations. I mean, the, this is the, the current relations that's, that I see preserved in the report as a suggestion. Which, what, what is important in the institution institutional reforms is that you suggest that either the reduction or the shift of the voting rights in the commission, in the college, and also extension of presidencies. So we have a quintet of presidencies in, the, in terms of three presidencies and going for two and a half years. Can you describe a bit more how you came to those conclusions and how do you think, considering how countries are actually connected to the fact that they have their own commissioners and how they treat the presidency as a sort of uh, promotional endeavor as well, how do you think that it could work in practice? Do you think that this is possible to countries through your consultations? Do you see that countries understand that this is something that we should actually implement even now, not waiting for 35 countries to emerge? Because I think it's a, it's a, well, it's a long prospect, but even today that will be very helpful, especially when we have like Poland and Hungary coming one after the other in the, in the presidency. So can you explain more this institutional uh, shifts that you, that you suggest? First of all, you're absolutely right. We do not suggest to fundamentally change the balance between the institutions, simply because the system has been built um, in a way that balances citizens' participation through national, um, well, through, through European elections, which as we regret still happen in a very national legal framework, but they are still European elections. Um, secondly, uh, participatory mechanisms, which we emphasize should be strengthened. We don't need to invent new ones, but we just need to make them more relevant to institutional decision making. Um, then we have the representation of national interests in the European Council and the Council of Ministers, and we have the European Commission, which is supposed to be there to defend the European interest and 
make sure uh, that uh, the European treaties are implemented. But of course, and you pointed to that, the European Commission is also a place where countries send their representative, and that's how the commissioners are very often seen. The Lisbon Treaty actually already offers uh, choices to be made uh, to reduce the number of commissioners. But while we speak about that scenario, we didn't think um, that would ever happen. Um, you know, there are some candidate countries who are negotiating their EU accession and they easily say, oh, well, we wouldn't need a commissioner. But I think once you're in, you realize you will want your commissioner. And we simply didn't think, although we, we, we speak about the option, which is legally there, we didn't say this is our only recommendation to just implement the Lisbon Treaty and reduce the number of commissioners, meaning as a country, you won't have a commissioner either for the whole term, five years or maybe two and a half if you switch halfway through. We don't think that's going to happen. So we came up with a model where we say, okay, maybe there can be leading commissioners who uh, have a stronger role and then they work with a team of other commissioners. Um, that can be organized based on the Lisbon Treaty as well. However, if one wants to go as far as only giving the lead commissioners a vote in the council, uh, sorry, in the commission, then uh, you would need treaty change. So that again goes very far. Um, we think if only the system was even more hierarchically organized than it currently has been under the Rhine Commission, this would serve efficiency um, because right now what you see is more and more portfolios are being invented uh, to satisfy uh, the need to give each commissioner something to do. And we do think that they can work more powerfully if they are in teams and they have clear subjects they push and every commissioner could take home the issues, you know, talk to the national public, but should also act across borders, of course. So we think that way um, there's more efficiency in the commission itself, but you don't lose the aspect of having a commissioner that goes to Brussels and that, come home to you, that can come home to your country and talk about European affairs. The European um, Council presidency for us was actually an interesting topic to debate because we we do think that the council presidency is important not only for the management of course of of uh, council meetings um, but also for the message that is being taken home so if you are the if you hold the council presidency you have people visit your country you have communication campaigns you bring issues home you define your own priorities and so on However, we, we looked at the Troika and said, well, it's good that they coordinate for one and a half years, but what of the bigger priorities is actually ever done in one and a half years? Usually the process takes much longer. So what we suggest is let's look at the term, which is five years for the European Parliament and for the European Commission. That means five years, 10 half year presidencies. Why don't we say there are two teams, one for the first half of the term, the other one for the second half of the term. So five countries would coordinate their programming uh, rather than three. So that would also correspond to uh, the work program of uh, the European Commission and the EU as such for the new legislature. That's how we, that's how we came to that conclusion. Um, there would be no need for treaty change. This could be implemented if member states decide to do so. And we also go a little bit further, and there you see how much we were thinking about 
strategic capacity to act for the EU. We also say, why don't you align the budget term with those five years? Because then you have a work program, you have a team of 10 national presidencies, which work in two groups. Uh, you have a European Commission, which is more efficiently organized, and they all have a joint work program, which can be implemented through a budget, which also runs for that period of, of five years. One of the other things I wanted to ask you, because it's, I think it's almost everyone agrees it's necessary, but at the same time, it seems very difficult to implement, is the quite a majority voting on, on most of the issues, uh, including the foreign and defense policy. And I remember, uh, well, it, it, it was on the, it was basically on the record, so I, I think I can quote it, with the Croatian Prime Minister. And Mr. Blankovic, he, he said, when we discuss actually Orban and, and Hungarian policies, he said that, well, I mean, of course they disagree with Orban and so on, but at the same time, it is understandable that for the smaller countries and medium countries, uh, not having the QMV on the foreign policy, it is still the way to secure the interest, not just on those foreign issues, because it's actually not always the matter, but in general in the EU, because otherwise they, uh, they will feel irrelevant. And you suggest that we should move to the QMV, which seems logical, especially with the more countries joining EU. But also you offer some very concrete ways to secure the interest of the of the small and medium uh, countries. The sovereignty safety nets, uh, opt-outs, but in block, rebalancing of voting shares. Can you, can you address this QMV issue and, and the interest of the medium-sized member states? The QMV issue um, has been around as an issue for a very long time. If you remember uh, the German EU presidency a few years ago, um, actually uh, pushed, tried to push this in some issues of foreign policy making. It, it didn't work. There's a discussion around tax policy where unanimity can hardly ever be met. So this this issue is there. Interestingly, people who are who are very familiar with how the Brussels machine works, they say that even if QMV is not used while it is there, the fact that it is there is beneficial. Because if a country or if all countries know it may come to a QMV vote in the council, uh, they will want to forge a compromise because neither those who are in the minority or those who are the majority actually really like to bring an issue to the vote if it's very controversial. So um, we had interesting inputs from people who observe council negotiations and council decision making very closely who said just to have um, this as a rule without even applying it makes a difference to the way negotiations are led. So um, now our proposal is to indeed, and it's ambitious, and we know it won't make the unanimity of all EU member states, uh, to basically um, bring all remaining policy decisions in the EU to QMV. And that would mean the ordinary legislation procedure would apply to, to all areas. Um, now, we also say national interests need to be protected. And um, that means that nat national representatives and the Council of Ministers should be able to say, this is a decision which touches vital national interests. 
and that makes it more difficult to prevent uh, a qualified majority vote uh, than today just playing a veto um, on any decision which is happening quite often. So we hope that this would have a politically uh, important effect on forging consensus, but at the same time protecting national interests. If you really have to play the national card to protect what is really vital to your country, you still can. And you can transfer a matter from the Council of Ministers to the European Council, where decisions would still be made uh, by unanimity. But that should rather be the exception, because otherwise everything will be transferred up and that won't be um, that won't be very effective. We also suggest to rebalance um, the voting shares in QMB. Right now, uh, if you look at the uh, relative weight of countries and the current QMB votes, you see that uh, the larger member states have a proportionately bigger weight. And what we suggest is to adjust um, the, um, the current system where a qualified majority needs 55% of member states representing 65% of the population uh, to make it 60-60. That would relatively strengthen the smaller ones um, and weaken the bigger ones. So there you can see that we were not uh, uh, only making proposals that are totally in France's and Germany's interest. Um, and it, this is really one that the governments didn't particularly like because it means uh, giving up uh, their big, big, uh, in their big, big weight in, in qualified majority decisions. So um, we hope that those proposals would make it possible to make decision-making more effective um, and in particular to, to push governments to work more productively together. The veto possibility in single policy issues is at the moment quite often used to block things for different purposes, not related to the actual policy question at stake. And that is very bad for the EU's functioning. Well, and perhaps to end our conversation, I wanted to ask you, do you see that the fact that this is a Franco-German driven effort, do you think that this is actually uh, a good thing for, for the report? Do you think that that could inspire those two countries to uh, take the reading role again? And how would you see the success in the next one to seven years, let's say? Um, um, how, how, how do you see the biggest obstacles and how do you think that in one year, if you look back, how would you see that, okay, we, we, we succeeded and how do you see these coalitions moving? Do you think it should be Franco-German or do you think of, I don't know, enlarging the, the group that will be driven or it should be politically driven by the, by the capitals? How do you see the, the future after writing this report of the EU reform? I was frankly expecting more pushback on the fact that it is a Franco-German report. Um, you know, by countries saying it's again those two, where's Central and Eastern Europe, where, you know, all the questions that the Franco-German uh, um, couple usually gets. And interestingly, it was in our mandate that we should work with other people from other countries to bring in as many perspectives as possible. And we really did that very consciously and spent a lot of time uh, really integrating views and balancing our proposals because we were also, of course, driven by the wish that the report can make a difference and has something um, for many perspectives in it that makes it interesting. 
So we do think that the link which we established between enlarging the EU, which has a certain group of countries and very strong support, and the need to reform parts of the EU, which has other countries being very interested, that this could, could shape a group of countries that uh, collectively say, okay, we are tackling this together. We don't agree on everything, but we are here to make this historical move, which really would be an enlargement to eight or 10 more members to make that possible. I would say France and Germany have done a good job to, to, to take this initiative and the report has really kicked off a very intense debate. Uh, my co-rapporteur and I, um, Olivier Costa, um, we both um, attended meetings of the General Affairs Council twice. Uh, the first one halfway through our work, um, so in very early summer 2023, and there the debate was still in a way, slow and hesitant. Why do we now need to talk about the EU institutional reform? How does this really relate to enlargement? Do we have to do this? Um, and why, you know, is enlargement going forward as quickly as, you know, we were assuming? So this was a pretty, you know, a debate which, which I found, oh, uh, we are really at the beginning of building a joint reading of the current situation in Europe. In September, when we were back with our report, um, this situation had totally changed. So first of all, there was a very broad understanding that enlargement is really on the agenda and there's a geopolitical imperative. Um, however, it of course has to be uh, workable. And some countries were clearly taking the position, well, if we need reform, let's do it based on Lisbon. And others said, well, we see there are bigger things um, and we, we may need to touch the EU treaty and we offer um, several options how to actually achieve treaty reform, with the lowest hanging fruit being using the accession treaties to actually bring some reform to the EU. So there the debate was, I think, on a bigger shared base and pretty pragmatic on, on some issues. Um, and I see a real momentum happening now. Um, there are uh, initiatives by other governments who have asked other think tanks or groups of researchers to deliver their own papers. Um, there's a report uh, which was uh, spearheaded by a think tank in Lithuania. Uh, there's one from CEPS in Sweden. And interestingly, we get invited around the EU and to candidate countries to speak about the proposals by policy planners, by governments, by parliaments, by other think tanks. So for me, there was a Franco-German impulse, which was definitely crucial to kick this off. But by now, it is really a trans-European debate and positions now come from everywhere. And that is exactly what we need. Well, that's very optimistic. I know to end uh, the fact that we treat the, both the enlargement and the EU reform seriously, perhaps for the first time in the long, in the long time. Um, thank you so much, Daniela, for coming up to the podcast. Daniela Schwarzer. Our co-rapporteur of the Selling on High Seas, Reforming and Enlarging the EU for the 21st Century. Please do read the report, it's very readable. And of course, those of you who speak German, please go and buy Christenzeit, Sicherheit, Wirtschaft, Zusammenhalt, was Deutschland jetzt tun muss. Pardon my German, but it's... German. it's... <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being with us today, Daniela. Thank you for having me, Leszek. This was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.